Um, but we have a, a special guest with us today, uh, a dear friend of mine, and uh, I am delighted that he could be with us and, and take the time out of a very busy schedule to be with us. Um, our guest speaker today is the Right Reverend Dr. Paul Barnett. Um, Bishop Paul was the Bishop of North Sydney, Australia uh, some years back before his retirement, but when I say retirement, he really has been active even uh, in retirement. Um, he is, in addition to being a bishop of the church, he is also a professor at Macquarie University in Australia. He has been a visiting lecturer at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, where J.I. Packer is, some of you know that. Um, he has, he's one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars, and he is a leading Pauline scholar. And just uh, as an advertisement, there's a stack of books over there on the piano. Uh, he didn't do this, we did this. Um, but it's his latest book, um, a short um, book on Paul. So if you're looking for a really good book, it's a primer on Paul, that would be your, the book to go to. Uh, as a matter of fact, he has also written a commentary on, of all books, the book of Revelation. And I have been using that as a source as I have been teaching you uh, over the course of the past several weeks. Uh, he's written a whole host of books. I first came in contact with him when I read his book, Jesus and the Rise of Early Christianity. He holds a PhD from the University of London, and that was a phenomenal book. And uh, I had become the new director of Mere Anglicanism, a theological conference, and we were doing a conference on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And having read that book, uh, I was just enthralled. And so I wrote to him and asked him to come and be our keynote speaker, and it's been the beginning of a wonderful relationship. So we are delighted to have him with us today. Uh, he is going to speak to us on the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, who, as I said in church earlier today, is arguably next to the Lord Jesus Christ, the most influential person who's ever lived. Um, we are here um, in large measure because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Those of you uh, who went to Greece and to Turkey this past summer, you walked in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. So uh, you're going to hear one of the foremost Pauline scholars in the world today, this morning. I want to introduce um, his better half, however, and she's back there with my wife, uh, Anita Barnett. Anita, if you just raise your hand, there she is. Um, she is an absolute delight, and, um, and we are just so thrilled that they could both be with us. So um, as you see them today, give them a, a hearty St. Philip's welcome. Welcome them to the United States, and welcome them, of course, to the city of Charleston. But Bishop Barnett, um, I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his grace and for his mercy and the blessing of salvation that he brings to our life. And we thank you, Lord, for those you have raised up. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for those down through the ages who have been fearless communicators and of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for people like Bishop Paul Barnett, who have been so faithful over the course of their ministry and their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would just anoint him with every spiritual benediction and grace that he needs this morning, that he may speak to us. Bless him, preserve him, and his wife, Anita, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As he comes forward, let me just say that this um, past summer, uh, he was also honored by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in her birthday honors, and he received um, the, one of the highest orders uh, in Australia, the Order of Australia, for his service to the church and to the state. So we are very blessed to have him with us. He is, I said, I don't know whether to call him Dr. Barnett, Bishop Barnett, Sir Bar Paul. I don't know what to call him, but, but at any rate, he is all of those things, but above all, he's my dear friend. So Bishop.
Well, good morning, everybody. A great uh, pleasure and privilege to be with you this morning. I must say I had some difficulty recognising myself <laughs> from your rector's very kind remarks. Um, before I actually address the material which you have in note form, I'd just like to sort of create a little bit of context, and that is that I think the Apostle Paul was incredibly dependent upon the Apostle Peter. Um, certainly the Apostle Paul has this amazing Damascus experience when God reveals himself to him. But then uh, the Apostle Paul comes back to Jerusalem, spends time with Peter, and no doubt fills in so many of the gaps about his knowledge from Peter. And it's worth being reminded that Peter was not only the leading disciple of Jesus, um, but he's also the, the leader in early Christianity, first of all in Jerusalem and then in other places as well. So we know a lot about Peter, and the more I know about Peter, the more I understand that uh, he really was very influential in regard to the Apostle Paul, and I'm sure filled in many, many, many of the details uh, that Paul would not have otherwise had. So that's just to say a little bit about uh, the, the need to not sort of isolate Paul from what we might call mainstream discipleship that began with the initial followers of Jesus. So let me now address the notes that you have. First of all, I make reference to the greatness of Paul. Eminent British scholar Professor Dunn, quote, it was Paul more than any other single person who ensured that the new movement stemming from Jesus would become a truly international and truly intellectually coherent religion. Another great scholar, the German, the late, great Martin Hengel, Paul's mission was, quote, unique in the ancient world. And an unprecedented happening in terms both of the history of religion in antiquity and of later church history, unquote. And that as a result of what he did, Paul, quote, remained unparalleled over the subsequent 1900 years. Anthony Flew, a leading British philosopher who had been a long time atheist but in recent years has not become a Christian to my knowledge but has certainly become a theist, said that Paul was a first class intellectual who had a brilliant philosophical mind. So we know that such has been the influence of this man that whole cities have been named after him, um, great cathedrals named after him, university colleges and so on. However, he has not been without his critics. Uh, there have been those who have admired, even loved Jesus, but who have hated Paul, in fact have believed that Paul somehow has hijacked Jesus and made him into a dying 
and resurrected Redeemer, whereas according to this view, he was a sage, a prophet, a rabbi, but not a redeemer. And so that view was um, made popular by German scholar, scholar William Rader in the 1906, who said that um, Paul was the real inventor of Christianity and not for the better. <laughs> that was William Rader. And that view has been very influential, followed by such eminent persons as Gandhi, the philosopher Nietzsche, philosopher Kierkegaard, New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann, George Bernard Shaw blamed Paul for what he called Christianity. And the uh, Greek novelist Kazantzakis wrote a very influential book, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, which was made into a movie some years ago. And so the, the views of um, William Rader and co, certainly in my part of the world in Australia, often surface in the popular media. Um, they seek to discredit Paul's teaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus and they want to get back to a kind of simple Jesus who has a simple message, lovely parables and so on. Uh, but that awful business about dying and being raised from the dead, they say, uh, they do not like that at all. However, um, it's quite clear from the teaching of Jesus that uh, he saw his death as in fact redemptive. Uh, Mark chapter 10, he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom a ransom to me. That certainly captures the idea of redemption. And then the Apostle Paul in his letters uh, makes reference to what he calls tradition which he has received. Now we use the word tradition for something that is venerable, something from the past which we treasure, maybe some not treasuring it, but simply it is a a value from the past, as it were, which continues to be honoured. In the Jewish world, however, and the Christian world, the word tradition means an actual body of teaching, a, a catechism or something like that. And that's what the Apostle Paul said he received, and he would have received that from the original apostles led by Peter in Jerusalem. So there is the Easter tradition, which 1 Corinthians 15 uh, quotes, Christ died for our sins. That's redemption. Christ died for our sins. Christ died uh, as a substitute for our sins, a representative for our sins and so on. Another tradition that 1 Corinthians quotes is the Eucharistic tradition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He quotes, my body, Christ's body that is broken for you. Again, the idea of substitution. Christ died in our place for our sake. So this is not something that Paul made up. It wasn't his idea, as it were. He is merely passing on the tradition which is received 
from those who were apostles before him, led by Peter. So I think it is not that difficult to defend uh, what Paul is saying is not just his invention, but something that was in the heart of Jesus himself and something that the original disciples of Jesus firmly believed. Let me say something about Paul's life. Uh, we're in real difficulty here. Um, we've got a reasonable idea about the date of his death, middle 60s, but his date of birth is really hidden from us. So based on a bit of guesswork, which I won't trouble you with, I'm guessing that he's round, born in, round about in the AD 5 in Tarsus. And he died by execution, beheading probably, in Rome in the middle 60s. He was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens were not crucified. Peter was not a Roman citizen, although certainly he was crucified. So Paul escaped that terrible way of execution. Now, the, the pre-Christian Paul, his life of 60 or so years, a relatively young man, really, by today's standards of age anyway, um, we can divide his life fairly neatly into two parts. So the first part is in Tarsus, then Jerusalem. That represents the first part of his life. In Tarsus, um, in the province of Silesia, you can imagine the Mediterranean and you've got that little corner in the north-east corner of the Mediterranean, that's where Tarsus is. So he's born into a conservative Jewish family, where, however, he would have been exposed to the Bible, the Old Testament, that is, in its Greek translation, the so-called Septuagint. Very probably he was homeschooled with a um, personal tutor or pedagogue. I doubt that his very conservative father would have exposed his son to the vagaries of Greek education. By birth he is a Roman citizen and he is also a citizen of the city of Tarsus. So he comes from wealth and privilege. As a young teenager, the family, apparently the family, not just Paul, the family moves to Jerusalem, reasons not given. Where the boy becomes a pupil of the most eminent rabbi of the day, whose name is Gamaliel. There are several Gamaliels. Well, here's Gamaliel one. Where there would have been further exposure to the Bible in its Greek form. Now, Paul is very knowledgeable in the Greek Bible. That is his theological and intellectual universe, we might say. So we can only assume that uh, he had been exposed to the Greek Old Testament from his earliest years, which continued into his years as a pupil rabbi in Jerusalem. Um, as a young man in his late 20s, perhaps 30, um, he becomes the hatchet man, if I can put it like that, of the high priest in his attacks on the Christians. And he is either complicit in or directly involved in 
the death of Christians. Uh, so successful was he in that regard that he is sent by the high priest to extradite Christians from the nearby city of Damascus where they had fled and bring them back for trial in Jerusalem. Well, we all know the story of what happened on the road to Damascus. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege in 2011 or 12, 11 I think it was, to visit Damascus. Some of you may have been to that beautiful but tragic country. And uh, just a few miles outside of Damascus, the Greek Orthodox folks have erected a magnificent statue of Paul in the strong belief that it was this place where the amazing revelation, the amazing apocalypse occurred to the Apostle Paul, whereby the glorified, the crucified but glorified Jesus identified himself to the persecutor, Paul Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, we know the rest of that story so well, don't we? So that marks the end of the pre-Christian Paul, and so we now engage with him in the next 30 years, as it were, the remaining 30 years, and how much he achieved in those 30 years. Um, this man laid the foundations of Christianity in the Greek East, in the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and in Galatia, and in Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. He planted little churches that grew and spread. He laid the foundation for Christianity along with the Apostle John, which became the basis of Christianity of the Greek version of the Roman Empire based in Constantinople, a civilization that extended from about 313 or so to 1453 when the Ottoman Turks finally overcame the great city of Constantinople. Well, who was it that laid the foundation for Christianity in that part of the world upon which we in the West ultimately were the beneficiaries because these were the people who preserved the sacred texts of the Bible as well as the, sacred, as the, as the texts of the classical world as well. So we need to see Paul as being um, immensely influential. So he's in Damascus and Arabia, 334 to 37, back in Jerusalem in 37, back in his native Syria or Silesia for about 10 years, 37 to 47. Then off he goes with Barnabas and John Mark initially to the province of southern Galatia in the regions of um, Cyprus, Pisidia, like Ionia, and on the basis of that writes his Galatians letter. Then with uh, Silvanus and Timothy, and then Luke, uh, he engages in missionary work in Macedonia and Achaia, and from there he writes the two Thessalonians letters. Then he engages in missionary work in Asia and Macedonia, from which he writes a whole host of letters between 53 and 56, the two Corinthian letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Romans. 
Then he's in prison, first in Palestine and then in Rome, but between 57 and 62, from which he writes Philippians from Rome. Then he's released and then re-imprisoned and executed and in that latter stage writes uh, 1 Timothy, Titus and 2 Timothy. So really it's an amazing career of just 30 years to have established all those churches and written all those letters and uh, in ways that have changed the world. Uh, he was apparently a very strategic thinker. Uh, he didn't just establish churches anywhere. Uh, he liked to go to cities that were at crossroads, for example, like Antioch in Pisidia, modern-day Yelvach. Uh, where there was a great north-south road from Ankara down to the coast in Antalya, and there was a great east-west road that coincided with that at that city between Ephesus and uh, Syria in uh, Antioch in Syria. So a great crossroad city, and Paul liked to establish his teaching base there, and there's endless traffic passing by traders, bureaucrats, soldiers, visitors, and so Paul would teach there, teach there, teach there, and, and people would hear the Christian message. He also liked port cities, Corinth being a special example, where the little isthmus between the mainland and the Peloponnese uh, has a harbour on both sides of the isthmus, and constant through traffic of people by ship and north and south on foot. And so Paul would have the opportunity of teaching, teaching, teaching the Christian message. And so travellers would pick up that message and take it back to where they came from. Um, a second area of his strategic setting was he was an incredibly gifted chooser of colleagues, um, especially as his time goes by. Uh, we see Paul associated by more and more and more loyal lieutenants. I think if you count up all the people that Paul names, there are more than 100 of them. There are probably 25 or 30 of them that are what you would call really close lieutenants to him, people like Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silvanus, Priscilla and Aquila, and there are many, many more. Um, he was very, very gifted in choosing good people, good loyal people, uh, people who were self-starters in their own right. They weren't just dependent on him, but they were people who were loyal to him and yet they did things, as it were, by their own initiative. Um, that, that is a great gift to have for, uh, for Christian ministers to be good choosers of colleagues. And I might say in the political sphere as well, a great gift for the politician who can, as it were, identify those who will be gifted and loyal, but that's another matter. Um, he establishes himself in what we might call key centres and nodal centres, and local evangelists from those nodal centres would go out and establish a daughter church. And then out from them there would be another daughter church. And so little by little by little, as it were, from tiny beginnings, um, churches grew in that particular way and the Christian message spread. 
Um, and then, not least, uh, his, his absolute brilliance as a letter writer. Uh, there, there is nobody in the ancient world like the Apostle Paul has, who has devised the notion of the letter as a, as a means of pastoral ministry. I mean, there are plenty of letter writers in the ancient world, Cicero and Pliny and others, but Paul's letters were special. They were written for a particular purpose and he pioneered the pastoral letters in his 13 epistles to churches and to individuals. Let me say something about Paul's message. And here we are, can just, as it were, touch the surface without doing, going into any depth. Clearly the centre of the message of Paul was Jesus. He was, that was his message. Jesus as the Messiah, Christ, Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Lord, the Saviour, and so on. That is, that is at the heart and centre of the Apostle Paul. He understands profoundly the importance of the crucifixion of the Son of God and his resurrection for human redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Um, he places tremendous emphasis on the importance of faith, not blind faith, that is, but a living trust, a living confidence in the Jesus whom he proclaimed. And his great argument with um, those who wanted to go back to a form of Christian legalism was to insist that it was by trusting in Jesus Christ that God uh, reckoned or imputed righteousness to those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So his message to Jews was that Jesus is the Messiah as prophesied, Son of God who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Uh, he had a different message for Gentiles, however. The message to Gentiles who were idolaters was to turn from your idols to serve the living God and await for his Son from heaven. Paul is often portrayed as a rather aloof, um, ideological, intellectualised kind of person. But if you look closely at his writings, he turns out to be very deeply a man of prayer. Uh, there is no other source within the New Testament that has so much encouragement about the importance of prayer. Uh, there's nobody in the New Testament who writes letters that has so much emphasis upon the Spirit of God and the teaching about the spiritual God. So he is a prayerful man and he's a deeply spiritual man, as it were, with a great love of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, he is a, a, a great proponent of love. We only have to think of the wonderful 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But many other passages from the Apostle Paul where love is so important. And we see that love displayed between Paul and his churches and Paul and his missionary lieutenants. I mentioned earlier on the notion of traditions, of bodies of teaching. 
in the Jewish culture, a master rabbi uh, would create a tradition, almost like a legal judgment that a lawyer or a judge would create, which the master rabbi would in turn pass on, deliver to a pupil rabbi. Pupil rabbi in turn would become a master rabbi and he would pass on his tradition, his paradosis is the Greek word. Now the Apostle Paul apparently devised a whole series of traditions that when he established a church he preached the gospel about Christ crucified and risen gather people together in a congregation almost always in a home somewhere and he would begin to teach them these traditions. I've mentioned some of them already. The Lord's Supper or Eucharistic tradition was one such tradition and we can imagine Paul teaching this by rote. Uh, it's almost certain that he did, that the exact words of Jesus in the Last Supper which Paul had received from the apostles, he would then pass on to the churches everywhere that he went so that they would learn to value and appreciate the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, which some of us have enjoyed so much this morning and others will look forward to that shortly. So there are these traditions um, and there is already mentioned the Easter tradition. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared alive to bang, 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 all those people. The Easter tradition. That was almost created, almost certainly created in Jerusalem shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, led by Peter. And then when Paul comes there, Peter, I presume, passes on that tradition. So wherever Paul goes subsequently as a missionary establishing churches, he would have passed on that tradition. And so we see him in his letters reminding people of those absolutely key traditions about Jesus which he had received. But there were, there were others. Uh, clearly there were his traditions about marriage and family life what was to be expected between the relationship between a man and a woman and a husband and wife and their children and so on. Uh, and that was countercultural. In the Roman world, uh, marriages were a matter of convenience and um, parents often had more interest in the sons they adopted than their, their biologically born children. And so Paul is countercultural. He is establishing the absolute importance of the family, absolute importance of marriage, children, and the relationship between mums and dads and children, and how Western societies that have been blessed by the Christian message have been blessed by the teachings of the Apostle Paul, which have created such a blessing of relationship between people and provided such stability within whole nations the Apostle Paul's traditions. Likewise, his traditions on sexuality, uh, his importance of the work ethic. Um, he, he, he could have been supported financially by people, but he chose to work to support himself. It was a slave society 
Work was a dirty word. Work was for slaves, not for free people. But Paul demonstrated the absolute importance of being dependent on no one but to support yourself and to provide for yourself. And so he worked in the arduous work of being a tent maker, which were made of leather, filthy uh, practice it must have been, because leather was cured in horses' urine. So he would work by night uh, in order to be able to teach and preach by day so that he wasn't dependent on anyone. And that wasn't a matter of pride on his part. That was to teach people the importance of work, to look after themselves where they were able to. Disability, of course, is accepted from that. Similarly, there were important teachings of alcohol. He wasn't against alcohol, he wasn't against wine, but clearly uh, in a world where it's a world of drunks, the Greco-Roman world. Roman emperors could hardly stand up. They were drunk so much of the time. They really were. They were drunk. It was only, the, it was only Pliny the Elder who, who wrote about the dangers to health of the abuse of alcohol. People actually thought that when you were drunk, your slurred speech was actually a god speaking through you. So alcohol was a problem. Many drunks still think that, I'm afraid. <laughs> Anyway, there we are. And then, of course, there was a teaching of um, uh, the respect for the powers that be, even though they weren't particularly good powers. I mean, uh, Nero was emperor for much of Paul's time as, as an apostle, and he was not a good person at all, as we know. But he nevertheless had the idea of the importance of office, the, that the office that a person held, even independently of the character of the person in the office, that office was to be respected. And so Paul's teachings have been deeply influential uh, in our modern democratic societies in that respect. Well, you're coping with all this information, I hope so. Um, Paul in the Old Testament there are two texts in the Old Testament that were of particular importance to Paul. One was Genesis 15:6, which says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. That is a very important text for Paul, because there were Jewish Christians who were saying that the important thing for everybody was that males had to be circumcised, you have to keep the religious calendar, you have to keep the Sabbath, you have to keep the dietary rules, you have to keep the purity rules, etc. Faith was okay, but you had to do all that other stuff as well. In other words, you had to become a Jew. That's what these Jewish Christians were saying, the Jerusalem-based Jewish Christians saying. Paul saying to the Gentiles, no, 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 no. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteousness. So that text comes up again and again in Paul's letters, particularly in Galatians and Romans chapter 4. Another text that was really very important to him was the Abraham promise in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, in you, i.e. in your descendants, will all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul sees that fulfilled in Jesus as that descendant of Abraham through Jesus all the families of the earth will be blessed and here we are look at us 
mostly Americans, here's an Australian, there'll be some other people from other countries in the world. And here we are, a universal community of people, as it were, blessed in that son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was so important for the Apostle Paul to see um, the whole of humanity being potentially blessed. In the ancient world, there were people like Alexander the Great, who had a great vision for homonoia, harmony between races. Alexander sought to achieve his vision. He was a pupil of Aristotle uh, by, by military means to force homonoia on people. The Apostle Paul brought homonoia within communities of people, whether it's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor rich nor poor, homonoia based on the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, message that brings people together regardless of their race or gender or background. I'm nearly through, but uh, just let me say one or two more things. Paul saw the importance of membership. Um, he could have just said, all you need, you can believe in Jesus and stay at home. Wouldn't be bad sometimes, would it? Um, he saw the importance of membership, of belonging, and being built up, supported as a Christian, uh, supported in tough times by fellow Christians and by Christian pastors and so on. And so the, the notion of membership, whereby we receive love and we give love, and we, sh we share our gifts, we share our bounty with one another. That was Paul's vision for humanity, really, through, through go godly congregations of people being what humanity could and should be like. Faith in Christ was to be expressed in love and humility. So Paul repeatedly uses the example of Jesus in respect of loving and humble behaviour. He says to the Philippians who were squabbling with one another uh, that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And our Lord's humility in coming down to earth and dying terrible death on the cross, an expression, expression of his humility in serving. And Paul eloquently writes about that in most wonderful terms in the second chapter of the Philippians. Paul was deeply saddened that his fellow Jews uh, were not responsive to the message that the Messiah had come, but he didn't give up hope. And he, he understood that in the end, uh, there would be a re-inclusion of the Jewish people. Particular things that Paul disliked, he disliked triumphalism, humility was his thing. Uh, he didn't like elitism, um, rather he emphasised service. He didn't like legalism, he emphasised freedom. He has a strong view of the importance of the Christian mind and therefore its engagement with culture. These famous words 
uh, which are embossed in the BBC in London, sadly forgotten today, one suspects. Whatever is honourable, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is commendable, if there is any excellence, any worthy of praise, think about these things. So the Christian can go to the art gallery and enjoy fine works of art. The Christian could go to the concert and enjoy Beethoven, Brahms and Bach and so on and understand that it is all part of the, the good creator's blessing. And here we have the Apostle Paul saying those wonderful words. His achievements? Well, he planted the seeds of Christianity that grew into the Christianity of the Eastern Roman Empire. I've already mentioned. He had much to say about the dignity of mankind. Uh, the fact that he speaks disparagingly of the notion of slavery as opposed to freedom, spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom, indicates that he would have been strongly opposed to actual slavery. He sees a separation of church and state, hallelujah, um, he sees the importance of marriage and family, the work ethic, and I might say the endorsement of the role of women in ministry. So he has this corpus of remarkable literature, which is the most widely heard voice from the Greco-Roman world. There is nobody that comes within a bull's roar of the influence of the Apostle Paul from the Greco-Roman world. Here we are studying the letters of Paul. Here we are in Bible study groups studying the letters of Paul. Cicero might have his advocates, Lido, Lido Pliny uh, and others from the ancient world, but there's nobody, nobody, nobody who is so influential upon us, apart from Jesus himself, as the Apostle Paul. Well, there's more to be said, but time is gone and I'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs>